This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law, joining us via Skype. Well, are the students out for snow day today, Professor Gershon? Uh, no, not at the university, Liz, although uh, the public schools here did have a two-hour delayed start. And, and you have to understand that it's hard when uh, the officials have to make those decisions. But we got no snow, as far as I could tell. And it sounds like you, you kind of came away with not anything as well. Maybe under a tree, in the shade, in the backyard, somewhere, there's a little bit of snow. But we understand, yes, uh, the governor needed to make uh, decisions and the principals and superintendents need to make decisions. So better safe than sorry. That's right. And, uh, you know, and, and anyway, well, I, you know, I know a lot of disappointed children uh, that there's not snow, but we're they can be listening right now to in legal terms. And we're really <laughs> lucky <laughs> this morning. Uh, it really is an honor to have Professor Chris Green on. He is our HLA Hart uh, scholar in law and philosophy. Uh, Chris brings a rich background, both in practice and in uh, the academic area. Uh, he has a Ph.D. from Notre Dame. His, he earned his law degree from Yale, clerk for Judge uh, Barksdale down on the Fifth Circuit in Jackson. I also worked uh, as a lawyer in Phelps Dunbar, so brings a lot of uh, uh, backgrounds in both areas. And he is one of the preeminent scholars in the concept of originalism. Uh, in fact, he'll be speaking about it. He speaks uh, extensively around the country on the subject. Uh, and so we're really lucky to have him. And I think a lot of people, when they, they heard about you know confirmation hearings for justices uh, of the Supreme Court, they, they understand people. Some people say, well, I want someone who's an originalist. Uh, Justice Scalia uh, was an originalist. And so, you know, it'd be good to have Chris talk to us today about what that really means to, to you know, be originalism. Uh, Justice Scalia was a very uh, respected judge in Mississippi. He came down here and hunted a lot and spoke at our law school. Uh, but he said that uh, he treated the theory of religion, originalism uh, was something very important and that um, but he wasn't a uh, an original intent person because he wasn't trying to get to. You know, what were what secret thoughts were the founders having when they formed the Constitution? So, Chris, uh, would you tell us a little bit what is originalism exactly? Well, again, thanks for uh, having me on again. I was uh, uh, on the show uh, just after uh, the Constitution Day debate uh, that we had here on uh, September 17th. And uh, actually next week I'll be having a debate with the uh, same fellow, Professor Eric Siegel uh, from Georgia State. Um, but uh, what is originalism? As I it is a term, it, it is a term that is used in different ways. Um, a lot more people since Justice Scalia, uh, especially, uh, 
distinguished his views from original intent. They've talked about the original public meaning of the constitutional text as being uh, the constitutional lodestone, the key consideration, the prime consideration for constitutional interpretation. So the way I would put it, I would say uh, originalism is the view that the meaning originally expressed by the text of the Constitution, the text that we carry around in our pockets if we're uh, uh, constitutional law nerds, that meaning expressed by that text is binding even if we think it doesn't go far enough or even if we think it uh, uh, is mistaken at points. So, you know, you talk about that. Now, he, Justice Scalia also mentioned textualism. Is there a difference between originalism and textualism? Or- there could be a difference uh, if uh, we had a somewhat different uh, constitutional system that we do. Um, we could, so some people, you, you could say, well, we have this text, and the question isn't what it, ex- what meaning it expressed in the 19th century when the 14th Amendment was adopted, or in the 18th century when lots of the rest of the Constitution was adopted. You could say, well, what matters is what meaning that text expresses today. Um, so that you could call that. Uh, I think it would be certainly sensible to call that a form of textualism, but it wouldn't be originalism. Uh, some people have even said you could be an originalist, but not a textualist. So if you thought that the thing to do when you look at a, a series of words, uh, the thing to do is to go back and see, well, what did the people who wrote those words specifically have in mind with respect to the application of those words? If you did that, um, I think you might really say if you're giving weight to what people thought it would apply to rather than the words themselves, that's not a form of textualism. But in practice, a focus on the text and what it expressed in its original context, that's the the focus uh, for a large group of people. So most of the people that you'll find out there who who are uh, saying that the text is binding, uh, they say that uh, the meaning expressed by the text in context is binding, but not all of them. And similarly, most of the people who go back to history to answer questions, the question that they tend to ask of the historical materials is what meaning was expressed by the text. You could ask different questions uh, and still be an originalist, but uh, in, a, in a different form. But uh, uh, that's a, the, the most frequent form of textualism and the most frequent form of originalism as well. Now you you are a you are uh, definitely a scholar in originalism. And what are the, the arguments in favor of using originalism to interpret for the Supreme Court and, and courts to interpret the Constitution and, and constitutional issues? Well, there, there are a bunch of different arguments. So it's, it's, there's, there's largely, if you go to a group of, of folks who call themselves originalists, there's largely a consensus over the idea that you're going to go to the meaning originally expressed by those terms. You're going to find a lot of uh, uh, diversity of view about why exactly we should do that. So some people will say, well, the reason is because stability – is more important in certain respects than flexibility. So they, they say, well, the whole point of a constitution, just as Scalia said this, the whole point of a constitution is to keep things stable so that we have a governing structure that'll stay the same uh, uh, in the midst of all these all these changing uh, social circumstances. Uh, some people will say, well, this is what 
James Madison thought we should do. So they'll go back to his his letters from from uh, uh, the 1820s and 1830s, and they'll find uh, uh, very specific uh, things like that. My view is uh, neither of those uh, in terms of the rationale for originalism. I would view uh, the, the root of our constitutional law is on the definition of the words this constitution. When the constitution talks about itself, it uses the phrase this constitution in a way that uh, makes it clear, I think, that when you're violating the Constitution, the thing that you're violating, the, 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 the Constitution itself, the thing, is the meaning historically expressed by the constitutional language. Um, so there's a various reasons, I, various problems I think that that view solves, but uh, uh, I don't want to uh, torment you with those uh, right away. I'll, I'll give you give you a few more, few more minutes. All right. Well, we do encourage callers to call in and call uh, Professor Green because, you know, I, I think people wonder, well, what does this have to do with me on a day-to-day basis, and it really, you know, there's a lot because these constitutional interpretations by the Supreme Court going forward could have implications for decades. And we, so, you know, but, we would love ahead, our listeners if uh, if you're home for a snow day, if you're at work and it's a little quiet, you could send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Or if you'd like to be part of the conversation, we'd love for you to call in. Our number is one. 877 MPB ring that's 1 672 7464 Thank you Liz. Now in, in terms of uh, the question of original intent, you know, Scalia was not big into the idea that we go back and think about what were the founders thinking when they when they wrote the constitution. A lot of people talk about the founders intent when they talk about originalism. What are your thoughts on that? So intent, if you go back historically and you find, if you ask, if you ask Madison, if you ask Marshall, John Marshall, the uh, first uh, uh, very prominent uh, uh, chief justice, uh, he wasn't the first chief justice, but he was chief justice from 1801 to 1835. Uh, If you look at treatises on interpretation um, from around the founding, from 19th century, you will find the word intent used a lot. The problem with the word intent uh, really is that it can mean lots of different things. So um, you will actually find a number of people who say, well, we're searching for the framers' intent, but we're searching for the framers' intent as embodied in the text. So it's the intended meaning. So uh, I would I would not be as hostile as Justice Scalia was to the idea of the word intent, but we've got to be clear what it is that is intended. It's intended expression of meaning in particular words. Um, the, the the Constitution divides the world between some things that are binding. It's a very limited set of things that are binding, that are made part of the Constitution, and a large, open-ended universe of things that are not binding. So when we look at the founders, uh, they are very imperfect uh, men, and uh, they are men. They're not uh, including women generally, uh, uh, and that's one of the imperfections, uh, uh, is that it was a patriarchal system, largely still in the 18th century. Uh, Lots of them had uh, terrible views about whether it was wrong to enslave other people. 
to the extent that those views were put into writing that is made binding, uh, they are still going to be binding on people to take an oath uh, to support this constitution. But to the extent that they weren't, uh, they aren't. So we don't have to agree with what Thomas Jefferson thought about uh, slaves. We don't have to agree with what Washington or uh, uh, Madison thought about those things. We can, for instance, agree with what Hamilton thought uh, or John Jay. Uh, and uh, uh, certainly after the 13th Amendment, we, we take out a lot of those, uh, of those un, un, unpleasant uh, uh, bits and uh, uh, but the parts that are in there, they are they are imperfect as well. But they're not as imperfect as the men who created it. Thank you, thank you. I know I know we have to take a break, Liz. So uh, we'll we'll continue. But uh, this is so fascinating. That's thank right. You. We will continue our discussion about the Constitution after the break. If you have a question and you'd like to participate in our conversation, as Wallace from Macomb does, you can give us a call. It's one eight seven seven. MPB ring. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. If you want to find out more about a Mississippi lawyer, we'll tell you how you can when we come back from our break. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our show li- whole show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the show at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms. That's one way. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. That's a second way. A third way is you can download our podcast. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law and our guest, Christopher Raymond Green, who was admitted to the Mississippi Bar on September 28th, 1999. And I know this from the Mississippi Bar's website, msbar.org. And I also know that there are two other Christopher Green attorneys in Mississippi, but ours is the law professor in Oxford. Uh, Do you get a lot of the other guys' mails, Professor Green? You know, I don't think I've gotten mail for the lawyer, Christopher Green. There was a pizza tossing, Christopher Green, in Oxford. Uh, so uh, for uh, the Oxford Eagle had a, an article, uh, get to know Christopher Green. It had a picture of, of a pizza tossing. Uh, I took the picture and I, uh, from the article and I put it outside my office. And uh, for a while, several of my students thought that I was a law professor slash pizza tosser. Uh, but I, uh, I, I, you know, uh, my law professor gig uh, takes up enough of my time. I haven't, haven't been able to learn that, but, uh, we do run across, uh, uh, the other, uh, the other versions of ourselves from time to time. All right. Well, this morning we're talking about your rights, which come from our laws, or does the judiciary have the ability to infer that additional rights? And we do have a couple of calls. We're going to go 
to uh, Wallace and Professor Gershon. I think Wallace has a, a this one is a question you might be able to answer. Uh, go ahead, Wallace from Macomb. Yes, how you doing? I wanted to start off by first saying I love you guys. I have learned so much through the past years from you guys, and I want to say I love your ministry. Fantastic. Well, we're so glad uh, that you listen. Yes. My question is today is I have been beaten terribly by the police since 2010. You can check my records and everything's on camera. I got diamonds out of dirt and everything, so why would I need to feel bad about them sending me letters in the mail telling me that I can't sue a person after this date? It's unlawful to tell someone that they can't sue nobody or stand up for their civil rights under the Constitution. Is there a statute of limitations, Professor Gershon, on on a, a time when someone could bring suit if there's a police involved? Well, you know, actually, Professor Green is the constitutional law expert. And yeah, there, there has been a lot of um, uh, a lot of controversy lately about this idea of qualified immunity. So, in 1871, uh, when we pass, uh, uh, so it's a section that nowadays is called uh, Section 1983. Uh, but don't confuse it with the year 1983. It was passed in 1871, uh, and it was part of uh, the enforcement of the 14th Amendment. And uh, it said if somebody violates uh, somebody acting under color of state law violates your rights, uh, you can sue them for damages. And since the 1960s and 1970s, the U.S. Supreme Court has interpreted that through the lens of a doctrine they call qualified immunity. So there are certain people who get absolute immunity, so like prosecutors and judges, uh, you can't ever sue them. Uh, but uh, ordinary executive officers like police officers, uh, they get qualified immunity. And what that means, as the Supreme Court has uh, said, is that unless it's clear, unless it's clearly established that what they do is is unlawful, uh, you can't sue them for damages. And a number of people uh, have lodged, uh, I think, uh, very strong criticisms of the doctrine. Justice Thomas at the U.S. Supreme Court has said, if you go back to 1871, and if and you look to see what the background law was against which they were legislating, he uh, uh, suggests that he agrees with the critics who say that, that there wasn't really a doctrine of qualified immunity. So there is a lively historical debate. Uh, there's a debate among people who look at the Supreme Court about how much energy they should spend on qualified immunity uh, issues. They Frequently, if uh, somebody, if a lower court says that it is possible to sue a police officer, they will frequently look at it carefully and say, well, was it really clearly established? Uh, And uh, a number of people have said either that they should uh, stop spending so much energy uh, being so solicitous of uh, 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 police officers uh, or that they should possibly discard the idea of of qualified immunity entirely. So your ability to sue a police officer it's very tangibly affected by these basic doctrines and things like the history of 1871 and what Congress was looking at when they passed the Ku Klux uh, uh, Klan Act, um, the Civil Rights Act of 1871, uh, is very, very important to that to that issue. 
Well, and so Wallace, I, would you, I guess really what Wallace should do is get talk to a lawyer who does civil rights issues. And as, as, uh, as Liz mentioned, there's the Mississippi Bar website where there is a lawyer referral service there, and maybe that's the best place to go. Yeah, there are, certainly. Uh, when, so when I was at Phelps Dunbar, we had a uh, uh, so municipalities and their officers get sued quite a lot. Uh, municipalities they get sued frequently enough that they have to have a, a municipal uh, liability insurance program. So uh, among the most frequent uh, supply, uh, uh, frequent source of supply for uh, cases for uh, the law firm was. People uh, suing uh, police officers for, for misbehaving. They, unfortunately, uh, frequently, uh, they have a very difficult job, uh, but uh, they they make decisions that uh, frequently go up against and over the line of, of what people's constitutional rights are. All right. Wallace, I hope that helps you. Next, we have a call from Messias in Oxford. Uh, welcome to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Messias, go ahead. I was wondering, you had mentioned, uh, I think Professor Green had mentioned earlier about the tension between um, between the Constitution trying to address flexibility and stability. And uh, I was kind of wondering if that philosophically is the origin of the titles of conservative and liberal that we, we use today. Does that make sense? Uh, sure. I mean, broadly speaking, uh, you want to have some stability to your system. You don't want to have anarchy where everything is just up for grabs every moment. Uh, on the other hand, you want to have a system uh, that uh, allows for changes to be taken into account. The question is, and the question always is, where exactly do you draw that boundary? Um, so broadly speaking, I think uh, the, the tension about how much you want your constitution to change uh, is the same sort of issue about how much you want you know, your, your public policy about health care or economics, uh, uh, economic liberty, that sort of thing to, to change. Um, uh, but I think the, you know, the way in which the constitution answers it uh, might be a little bit different from how you answer questions of public policy. It is interesting. And thank you for that call. I mean, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, one of the things Thomas Jefferson said was, you know, if the Constitution, uh, as interpreted, can truly be changed at the decree of a judge, then the Constitution is a mere thing of wax in the hands of the judiciary, uh, which they may cha- shape and twist in any form they please. So that was one, you know, that's one argument for originalism. Yeah, uh, uh, Jeff- Jefferson was uh, not right about everything, but I think in as a general matter, he was right about that. Uh, you don't want to have a completely... Uh, completely liquid uh, constitution that has uh, has no uh, no shape at all, uh, or uh, you don't want a, a uh, uh, doesn't even have a fixed volume if it's if it's if it's uh, a, an, uh, an airy constitution that can be uh, pushed and and, uh, and pulled uh, just any which way. But there are ways in which the, the constitution does accommodate change, uh, but those are limited uh, in particular ways. Well, you know, based on your scholarship and originalism, are there some cases that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, decided not using originalism that would give you pause or make you uncomfortable? Uh, Are there? Uh, uh, Almost all of their cases are insufficiently (laughs) attentive. Uh, so my scholarship, my particular area of scholarship is, is the 14th Amendment, and uh, they uh, garbled it uh, right from the get-go. So the first uh, three 
big, important cases on the three big clauses in the 14th Amendment uh, made mistakes. The first mistake was actually, to some extent, compensated by the second and third mistakes. But we've got these three clauses. In 1873, they make a big mistake in the slaughterhouse cases. They largely read the privileges or immunities clause out of the Constitution. Four years later, just four years later, in Munn versus Illinois, they give a much more expansive interpretation than I think they should have to the due process clause. But that expansive interpretation of the due process clause largely uh, undoes, or it undoes a lot of uh, the work of the slaughterhouse cases mistake. And then in 1886, in Yiquo versus Hopkins, building on uh, an earlier case from 1880, uh, Schroeder versus West Virginia, but in Yiquo in 1886, the court then also gives a much more expansive interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause, uh, saying the equal protection of the laws means the protection of equal laws, which is, as I see it, uh, a big mistake. You're taking an adjective and you're plunking it, pulling it out of one part of the clause and putting it somewhere else. Uh, But the practical effect of that mistake in 1886 was, again, like Munn, uh, undoing uh, a big part of the mistake from 1873. So those three, Slaughterhouse, Munn, and Yik Wo, were all of them uh, mistakes uh, on historical grounds, as I see it, mistakes about the meaning expressed by the text of the 14th Amendment. But uh, they, to some extent, uh, come come they come closer uh, back to the to the origin that they they should have should have gotten than they had uh, than they would have if they had just had Slaughterhouse alone, for instance. But uh, and everything else is building on those three cases. Uh, so everything else since then is uh, to some extent garbled. So when we hear the term activist judging, it's not a new thing. In, in your opinion, it's something that it's it's I think it's a temptation. Uh, you you look at the Constitution, and a lot of people have looked at the Constitution and thought ah, that's not really quite what we want to have, and they have uh, succumbed to the temptation to adjust it according to their their views. And in 1873, a bunch of people looked at the Fourteenth Amendment and said. Wow, did, did we really undergo a revolution that substantial? Surely we didn't didn't give the federal government that much power. Um, and uh, they gave an interpretation of the 14th Amendment that was really, really stingy, in part because they just wanted the 14th Amendment uh, to be better in their eyes than it actually was. And to remind everyone, the 14th Amendment concerns the citizenship and the rights of the citizens of the United States. We're talking with Professor Christopher Green. He's with Professor Richard Gershon. They're both at the University of Mississippi School of Law, joining us via Skype. We'd love for you to participate in our conversation this morning. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 877 We'd love for you to call in with your question about your rights and our Constitution. You can send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. I am often asked... Where can I go for insightful legal tweets? If you're curious, I'll let you know after our break. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. You're 
You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert, and this morning we're talking about constitutional originalism with our guest, Professor Christopher Green. And if you are interested in following Professor Green on Twitter, he can be found at at CGGreen24601. Do you have a bit of fun there on Twitter there, Professor Green? I do. It's at CRGreen. Uh, uh, 24601. So you can tell my Les Mis uh, fandom uh, there. Uh, yeah, I go back and forth, especially with, I, I call him my Twitter frenemy, uh, uh, Professor Siegel. Uh, so we've had a couple of uh, in, in-person debates. We're going to have another. Uh, but uh, we go back and forth, uh, sometimes endlessly on, on Twitter. Uh, yesterday, we went back and forth, I think maybe seven or ten tweets, which was a very, very short thread uh, 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 compared to some of the ones we've had. Well, we have a call from Bill in Hattiesburg, who wants to be part of our show. Bill, thank Thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Good morning. I love your show and I like today's topic. Hey, I just got one question for the guys. You know, I'm a 60-year-old white male from the South, and it's, it's probably the only Democrat you'll meet down here. But here's my question. How can the validity of the Constitution be accepted by anyone other than a landowning, privileged white male who drew up the rules? Um, I thought of this question talking to a friend of mine who was not white, and he, he wonders that, too. How, how are we pushing this document on our country when our country is vastly turning non-white? Well, uh, I mean, one, uh, I, again, I, in terms of the legitimacy and the bindingness of it, I always come back to the oath. So you've got an oath that our officers take, uh, and that the the oath is uh, to uh, this Constitution. And again, the Constitution was written by people, with, and a lot of them had uh, really abhorrent uh, racial views. The, they did not write all of those abhorrent racial views into the Constitution. Uh, so the Constitution is written. Uh, it, the, the aim is to be written in a way uh, that expresses certain principles, and those principles can apply in lots of different contexts. Um, and in fact, the Fourteenth Amendment, Fifteenth uh, Amendment, were both written to deal with uh, uh, the history of white supremacy under the original Constitution. Uh, they didn't sugarcoat it or pretend that the original Constitution wasn't there. Uh, it's interesting. The Fourteenth Amendment. So it, it, it uh, expresses, I think, a principle of equal citizenship, uh, in part for the freemen uh, who were had just been emancipated by the Civil War and by the 13th Amendment. Uh, but it also, in uh, Section 3 of the amendment, said, well, but these Confederates that took an oath to support the original Constitution and then rebelled against it, they have to have special uh, uh, legislation passed in order to serve as officers. So the original Constitution, it's interesting, the 14th Amendment uh, embodies the idea that the original Constitution, even though it clearly was imperfect and needed to be corrected by Section 1, was binding under Section 3, even to the point of disqualifying people who had rebelled against it uh, from serving in office. So 
if we're going to make improvement in a way uh, that is actually not that is not going to uh, uh, start out with anarchy, we have to take the governing institutions as they are. And in part, I think the institution of promise keeping is an extraordinarily socially useful institution. Uh, we can't just say, well, all bets are off now. We need to build a, a, a new society. Uh, the folks who don't have any land or any money uh, are not going to fare well in a state of anarchy. So uh, uh, someone said, uh, uh, so Ronald Reagan one time said the, the, the most dangerous words in the English language, are, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. I think that's not quite right. The most dangerous words uh, to hear are, uh, I'm here to kill you and there is no government uh, to protect uh, you uh, from violence. So uh, protection from violence. And again, I think that's uh, an entitlement under Section 1 of the uh, 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause. That's what it's, it's uh, really the original meaning uh, is. It's an extraordinarily important uh, protection for people who are generally disadvantaged, who have uh, fewer resources uh, uh, to make it. And Bill, you know, Bill raises a great point that gets to... You know, you're, I can't make the argument Professor Siegel makes, but you you do have debates with Professor Siegel. So there is another side, you know, of interpreting the, the Constitution. And oh yeah, you guys have yeah. a friendly debate, and uh, he is not an originalist, and and I think he would agree with Justice Breyer for Breyer, for example. That the constitutions are meant to endure over time, but to do so, their interpretation must therefore be more flexible and responsive to changing circumstances. So. Our society has changed a lot. As Bill said, we're no longer, you know, uh, just white male landowners, but we've got a very diverse society, uh, diverse in terms of uh, uh, sexual preference and things that, that were not considered by the Constitution. So how can originalism really fit in that context? Yeah. So one thing about... So uh, and this kind of circles back to some of the issues that we talked about uh, just in the first few minutes. Uh, so Justice Scalia, for instance, distinguished original meaning from original intent. One of the reasons that distinction or a distinction like that is important is because you need to distinguish the general principles and categories expressed in the constitutional text. You need to distinguish those from the tangible applications uh, that those words uh, uh, covered at the time of the framing. So the general principle, for instance, of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges of privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. As I read those words uh, in light of their context, they mean that all citizens of the United States get the same rights as similarly situated fellow citizens of the United States. Which citizens are similarly situated to which other citizens is going to depend on the facts. And those facts are things we have to find out the best we can. The, uh, the facts that were assumed by people adopting the 14th Amendment, those facts weren't baked into the 14th Amendment itself. So to the extent the 14th Amendment expresses a category, it's up to us to come up with the facts that have to, uh, we have to use to, to, to fill that in. So uh, as a result, uh, there are a number of people um, who think that there are originalist arguments uh, for uh, uh, results like a Burgerfell. And uh, some people, so Professor Siegel thinks that's just crazy, uh, but it's, I don't think, uh, quite as crazy as it might first sound. 
if in fact same-sex couples are, um, as a matter of uh, what we uh, might uh, think we know about uh, the science, similarly situated to opposite-sex couples with respect to uh, what marriage is attending to, uh, uh, attempting to uh, pr- promote, if in fact those citizens of the United States are similarly situated in those relevant respects to other citizens of the United States, the principle, the unchanging a uh, fixed principle of the Privilege or Immunities Clause would require states to recognize same-sex marriage. There, of course, are arguments pushing back on those factual assumptions, but they're factual questions, fundamentally, uh, about which citizens are similarly situated to which other citizens, and uh, as well, questions about whether uh, modern-day judges have judicially cognizable uh, methods for finding those facts. But, uh, but the general idea that modern circumstances are going to cause the application of unchanging principles to change. Uh, that's, I think, very well uh, established, uh, and it, it fits with, uh, I think, our best uh, philosophy of language, for instance, fits with just how how words work, how general categories can have an ebb and flow depending on the facts. Well, Professor Siegel would uh, say this much more articulately than I can, but I mean, if if uh, if originalism is is the case, then we're allowing the dead hand, you know, generations ago, you know, from the 18th century, to control outcomes in the 21st century, uh, and why should we allow that to happen? Yeah, it, and again, it comes back to questions about why. So why would we allow uh, this super old constitution written by? You know, a small, you know, if nothing else, a small number of people, we vastly outnumber the people from the 18th century. Uh, uh, why would we allow them to govern us? Uh, and the, the rationale is we don't want anarchy. We want to have a stable system. Uh, and I would appeal to, again, the Article 6 oath. They offer the Constitution. The Constitution comes to us from the past, and it's mediated, of course, by the intervening history. But it comes to us as an offer of uh, a, a document to govern us. We don't have to accept the offer. Uh, but in fact, we have accepted the offer by squaring the Article 6 oath. Uh, so uh, it's a little like, uh, perhaps you might think, a, a medieval king coming to us and saying, well, I'll protect you uh, if you agree to uh, swear uh, an oath of loyalty to me. And we look at it and we say, well, I don't know. You're not a perfect king. I'm not sure, uh, not sure I do want to swear an oath uh, to you. If we collectively threw it off and all decided not to do it, there's not, I mean, the document isn't going to jump up and bite us. Okay, Thomas Jefferson isn't going to jump up and, 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 and uh, uh, chop our head off, Madison or, or, or Washington. I mean, they, they, they don't have power over us. They only have the power over us uh, that we give them by, but the, the method by which we do that is the Article 6 oath. Well, I know we need to take a break soon, uh, Liz, um, but uh, I'm excited to get back to this after uh, after the break. That's right. And we'd love to have our listeners participate in our conversation. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. And if you'd like to hear more on the interesting philosophy of constitutional originalism, I'll let you know how you can hear a whole another hour when we come back from the break. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. 
listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of this program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash terms. It's also available on the MPB public media app, as are all our local shows, and you can download the podcast. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law with our guest, Professor Christopher Green, who's also from the law school in Oxford. And we were lucky enough to have Professor Green on our program on September 18th, 2018. You can find that show as a podcast or online. And we have another call to go to. We've got Dawn from Memphis. Dawn, we're glad you're part of In Legal Terms today. Go ahead. Hi, good morning. Uh, I think I heard earlier there that it was, it was said the Constitution sets up a nice little government that protects, it was implied, the citizen. But the Supreme Court holds repeatedly uh, that, you know, the city owes you nothing. I think Gonzalez says the cops don't have to do anything for you. Um, where, where, where does this idea come from that, uh, I mean, how good a job is it really doing? I, I don't think I really agree. Is a case from 1989 uh, where uh, the U.S. Supreme Court said uh, the government does not have any obligation to protect you from violence. Um, as I read it, uh, that uh, is directly contrary to what uh, the Equal Protection Clause uh, means, uh, meant in uh, uh, at the time the 14th Amendment was uh, adopted. So 14th Amendment, uh, uh, you know, it says uh, in, the, in the Equal Protection Clause, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, this has been interpreted since 1886 to mean government has to treat you equally. But the original meaning, uh, as I read the sources, uh, uh, treat the phrase protection of the laws to mean protection from violence and the right to a remedy, the right to sue when your rights have been violated. So this is what, uh, for instance, uh, William Blackstone in the uh, 18th century, his commentaries uh, uh, talk about uh, a definition. This is what we mean when we say uh, a protection of the law. Uh, Marbury versus Madison talks about protection of the laws in, in those terms. In 1871, the Civil Rights Act of 1871, yeah. the Ku Klux uh, Act, they, uh, the congressman who framed the 14th Amendment talk repeatedly about the need to protect individual people from private violence. So the government uh, is not allowed to just stand back and uh, not protect you. They have a duty to protect even not just citizens, but any person within its jurisdiction. Of course, the government of Mississippi doesn't have a duty to protect you when when you're in Birmingham. But generally, the idea is if you are subject to uh, uh, the decrees of the sovereign here, this sovereign has the duty to protect you. We have a protection for allegiance uh, yeah. uh, reciprocal duties on the bat, on, uh, the, uh, the part of the, the people in uh, a territory and the government. Yeah, we, we agree. And I think that, that was embodied in the Equal Protection Clause. Right, right. I think we agree. Gonzalez was decided incorrectly. 
Well, I think Deshaney is the is the is the uh, is the word. And there were some later cases as well. So I'm not sure which there was a number. There were a number of Gonzalez cases when Alberto Gonzalez was attorney general. So I'm not sure which which case you're thinking of. Uh, Gonzalez for the the Colorado city of whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, Thanks for your. Oh, yeah. Castle Rock. Castle Rock. That's following Deshaney and continuing the, the mistake. That's right. Right. Thank you, Don. We appreciate you calling in while we're waiting for our next call to to get on. I have a question. Uh, Professor Green, I'm I can imagine there are a lot of constitutional scholars. Are there many constitutional scholars for state constitutions? What about at Ole Miss? Do you have any folks that study the uh, Mississippi Constitution or is it more? you know, written in a different way that it doesn't lend itself to philosophical study? Well, actually, I have taught a class on state constitutional law several times. It uh, It is an extremely important area. Uh, so actually, Judge uh, Jeff Sutton, who is he's a judge on the Sixth Circuit, he's a federal judge, uh, but he's written a book uh, uh, called 51 Imperfect Solutions, and he talks about state constitutional law. Um, and he was, for instance, in, in November at the uh, the big Federalist Society convention, he was the main speaker. Uh, so uh, he his work highlighting the work of uh, the people thinking about state constitutions uh, was celebrated. So it's, I would say, increasingly celebrated. It is a vast, sprawling area, I think very, very important uh, uh, not nearly enough scholars focus on it, uh, but it is an area where if you go into it, you can find untrodden ground uh, very easily. So I, I just taught a seminar in the fall, and I, I tell my my students in the seminar, get you to some state constitutional law issues, and if you can canvas that a- area uh, before anybody else gets to it, uh, you can get the, uh, the area named after you. So if you want to be the Amerigo Vespucci of state constitutional law, uh, you get there and get a good map, uh, they might name the continents after you. All right. Well, we've got John will be our last call of the day. John from West Point, thanks for calling in today. Welcome to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you for taking my question. So this is really just an opinion question for you about the Supreme Court and, and with the polarization that we have nowadays. So going back as far as uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, who was kind of known as a, as a swing vote, uh, and who was a Reagan appointee, and then you, you have then Kennedy became the quote swing vote, and he was a Reagan appointee. Now some are saying that John Roberts is the swing vote, which who obviously was a George Bush appointee. Why why do you think that we never get a quote swing vote from uh, an appointee of, of the Democratic side? Historically, we did have some. So Justice White frequently was the important uh, uh, median voter in the 1980s and the early 90s. So he was appointed by uh, John F. Kennedy. Uh, in part, I think uh, it's it, there are a number of things about the polarization of the political parties that has been um, – it's been a little bit mysterious why exactly the parties have, have, have polarized. Maybe differences in technology. Um, it's it's hard to tell. The elite institutions of the law tend to uh, lean uh, a good bit to the left. So uh, uh, the people talk about the greenhouse effect, about uh, Anthony Kennedy being pulled to the left. You don't really have uh, uh, quite the right 
leaning commentary on the Supreme Court from the media to, to produce the same kind of effect. But historically, you have had uh, some Democrats who have been uh, much more conservative than you might think. Justice White, he, he, he dissented in Roe v. Wade. He was one of the important uh, uh, swing votes on, uh, on a number of the decisions in the 80s and 90s. All right, John, we appreciate you contributing that to our conversation. Uh, Professor Green, we've got a minute. <laughs> well, I can uh, I can tell you, I mean, one thing you should do if you're a citizen uh, or a non-citizen, uh, get yourself a copy of the Constitution. Uh, I was in my uh, my constitutional law class and uh, and I asked them to, to recite. Uh, asked, I said, does anybody can anybody recite uh, this particular provision of the Constitution? And I think only a handful of the folks had uh, pocket constitutions. But just, you know, get, get yourself a copy of the Constitution and read through it. Uh, it's intended to be written. The Supreme Court says uh, frequently this is written for ordinary people, uh, ordinary citizens of the land to understand. Uh, if you're in a country governed by a document uh, or at least purportedly governed by a document, you should read it. So I encourage uh, encourage everybody to just t- take a look at it. Take you know, go online. The Mississippi Constitution is not longer, but if you're in a state, you should, you should know a little bit about what your state constitution says, too. I always tell people to read the Internal Revenue Code, too. But I think I think Chris <laughs> right. You know, uh, the, probably the Constitution is much easier to read and a, and a more important document on a day to day basis. Yes, not, not as not as good a cure for insomnia. My articles that I write about it, those are much more kind of Internal Revenue Code style cures for insomnia. Uh, but uh, but the Constitution itself, it'll go go pretty quick. Quick. It's just a, just a couple thousand words. Well, we'll check to see uh, what the level is on uh, the Google Play Store or Amazon. Thank you, Professor. Christopher Green for being on our show today. Thanks so much for having me again. This is going to wrap us up today for In Legal Terms. Our call screener for today has been Java Chapman and our board engineer in Jackson is Jay White. And for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedy show, Relatively Speaking. We hope you'll join us again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. 